0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Well, good morning. Do you have your Bible, open to Hebrews 11. I think for the sake of time, we'll try to read Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Then we'll open with a word of prayer. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's open with the word of prayer. Lord, we, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your scriptures and to study your word. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather with fellow believers, Lord. And privilege it is to have a Bible in our own language that we can read and study and learn about you, Lord. Pray for our time here to follow that we would be protected from error, Lord. I pray that we would be thinking through the many different ways that the Spirit would be seeking to apply the Scriptures to our lives individually, Lord. uh, Thank you for this body, and thank you for your Scriptures. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Now, I've given you a handout uh, that you can look look at or not, if you want, uh, whatever you prefer. Uh, In that, it gives you somewhat of an outline of the chapter itself, and so I've tried to make this chapter as simple as I can possibly make it. Uh, In in many ways, it's a very simple chapter to outline. There's just a lot of different, uh, a lot of information here, and so uh, as we go through the passage, I'll try to see if I can explain uh, some of the impulse behind the handout that I've given uh, as I can, and then also... uh, we'll see if we can try to hit some of the high points here. I know that I can't do everything that I'd like to do in this passage. There's just too many examples here (laughs) to work through and to talk about how each individual example relates to the Old Testament. So we won't be able to do everything that I'd like to do. And also... uh, It's important to make mention of the fact that this passage, Hebrews 11, as all Scripture, comes to us in the context. So if you think about what comes before Hebrews 11, there's a message of perseverance, and then what comes after... Hebrews 11, the beginning of chapter 12, you have another message on perseverance. And really, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews as a whole, you think about this theme of perseverance that's been weaving its way in and out of the previous chapters. And in some ways, it's coming to a climax in Hebrews 11. Uh, and once you get to Hebrews 12, you just think about Hebrews 12.1 as the climax of this message on perseverance. And so I say all that to say that I'm really not going to be talking about perseverance as much this week. I'm going to say that for Kevin next week. Uh, but what I really want to do this week is I want to try to define faith. I mean, the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 depends on your understanding of faith. So it begins with the definition of faith that we want to pay attention to and try to be careful in how we define faith. So first of all, I want to define faith uh, and then... Uh, want to talk about how faith pleases God, and then I want to give you some nine examples or something like that of how uh, the people of old pleased God through faith. Uh, so that's the basic understanding of the chapter. It's very, very, very simple chapter with a lot of information in it. So first, what we'll do then is we'll talk about this definition of faith, and the author of Hebrews, uh, whoever that may be, God. Uh, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the stick on the safe side uh, gives us a definition of faith uh, that we can use as a basis of, for our thought today so uh, god says faith is the assurance of things hopeful hope for and the conviction of things not seen so what you see there is a two part definition of faith uh, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen now Uh, If you've interacted with many atheists, I'm sure that you've been accused of having a a blind sort of faith. So uh, if if you're attempting to have a discussion about religion with an atheist, they're probably going to say, well, you have your faith and I have my reason. Or they'll say something like, "Uh, you have your faith, but uh, I believe in science, for instance, as if those things are incompatible. Uh, It's almost as if they're saying to you, poor thing, I hate to break it to you, but Santa Claus isn't real. Your parents lied to you. So uh, it's almost sort of a... Uh, They look at you as this pitiful uh, person who believes in the tooth fairy or something like that. And what they're trying to explain to you is that, hey, faith is completely irrational, unreasonable. And science, you know, it can be verified empirically. I mean, we can look and we can test things. And so it's objective in that way. So, uh, you know, I believe in something objective. And you believe in some uh, magical unicorn or something that uh, if you bow down and pray to that you'll uh, be uh, saved. Uh, So it's it's almost... um, Almost as if you is just you believe in pure fantasy there, and from time to time I, I don't know that we help the situation. So uh, sometimes the way we speak about faith, uh, we we speak about faith as Christians in sort of a, I guess very confusing way sometimes. Uh, sometimes we can speak about sort of a reckless faith or a faith that's just completely opposed to reason. So if you if you, uh, were to think about someone who is trying to do apologetics or finding uh, reasons why we believe what we believe, you, you get a little uh, uh, nervous about that sort of thing. And so, as I said, the, the, sometimes we, we don't really help the situation very much. But um, w- when we think of faith, uh, we we should not think of it as something irrational or unreasonable or completely absence of evidence. We shouldn't think about faith that way at all. Um it, it, in fact, as you read the scriptures, the scriptures just say that we are uh, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So uh, we, we're to seek to um, I mean, we, we believe things, and there's good reason for believing things. Uh, so uh, in this respect, faith is a very common word, which is synonymous with trust. Now, oh, uh, I should debate. Maybe a few years ago, it was a debate between Richard Dawkins, who's one of the, you know, most outspoken angry atheists out there. A uh, debate between Richard Dawkins and a man named John Lennox. And um, what Dawkins was trying to, he's the atheist, he's trying to explain to John Lennox that, uh, who's the Christian in that debate. You know, you, the same thing I just said, you know, you have your faith, I have my reason, you have your faith, I have science. And, uh, you know, faith, uh, I mean. They're they're arguing about what faith is, but uh, Dawkins is trying to explain to him that faith is just, you know, what makes faith faith is that there's no reason for it. It's just uh, irrational. It just makes no sense. And so uh, John Lennox, at this point in the debate, was trying to say that faith is not opposed to reason. That Faith is not opposed to evidence. And so in order to make the point, he says to Richard Dawkins, the atheist, well, you, you have faith in your wife, don't you? And so he sort of set him up. And then uh, Richard Dawkins responds, well, of course I have faith in my wife. Uh, What does that have to do with anything? And so then at that point, John Lennox, you know, raises his eyebrow a little bit. He's, uh, He's English. And so he raises, you just said you had faith in your wife. So what are you trying to say then that you're that that's a completely unreasonable faith that uh, you, you think that your wife wife is faithful, but there's no evidence that would substantiate the, uh, the trust that you have in your wife. Right. And so the crowd starts laughing at that point because uh, they saw um, the trap that he had laid for Dawkins there. But the, the simple fact is that faith is a very normal, natural word that we use on a regular basis. If I say that I have faith in my wife, I'm saying that I think she's trustworthy. And I think she's trustworthy, not in spite of the evidence, but uh, that faith that I have in my wife is substantiated by the evidence. So when we're thinking about faith, uh, often the words that should come to mind are words like assurance and conviction – uh, not that is contrasted with evidence. No, no, I mean, we have a well-founded faith that uh, that is sure. Uh, it's based on things we hope for. But oftentimes in Scripture, the word faith is contract, contrasted not with reason but with sight. So I believe in a God despite the fact that I can't see God. So oftentimes faith is contrasted with sight. But that doesn't mean there's not good reasons for the faith that I have. So uh, when you're thinking about faith, you're wanting to think about it primarily as being contrasted with sight. And that is one of the messages that works its way through this passage itself. So you'll have, as you go through the passage itself, you'll see certain phrases that are picking up on this uh sight language so at the end of verse 3 you'll see that by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of god so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible so we trust in a creation by faith i wasn't there an atheist wasn't there no one was there but we trust uh, we trust it by faith uh, similarly in verse 7 of the chapter you see by faith noah being warned by god concerning events unseen so when god warns noah of an upcoming flood uh, Noah can't verify immediately that there's going to be an upcoming flood. He can't see it right now, but he trusts that there will be because God is trustworthy, right? Uh, so similarly, as you work through the passage, um, you're going to see these glimpses of uh, this definition of faith working through the chapter. So uh, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So there's promises made to um Abraham to Noah to Sarah uh, they didn't see the fulfillment of it but they trusted that 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 these things would come true because they trusted in the character of God so uh, that as we're thinking of faith we're contrasting it with something that we. Uh, can see right now, in the moment. So if you use the example of my wife, for instance, I, I, I trust that my wife will be faithful to me. Uh, and the fact that I have trust or faith that my wife, wife will be faithful to me is demonstrated by the fact that I do not demand to be present with her everywhere she goes. You understand? So I don't see everything that she does, but I trust that when she's uh, alone, she uh, is trustworthy, with the way that she handles herself, despite the fact that I can't see her in that moment. So that's so. so when you're thinking about faith, think about it in, uh, in relationship to trust. Now, primarily, uh, it's a confident trust uh, of a sure conviction of the reality of something that you can't uh, observe at the moment. Now, as you think about how that def- definition of faith works, we're going to talk about how that relates itself to the passage um, But there's three main sections of this passage itself. So you see this definition of faith that's going to work its way through the passage. And then you see this uh, statement in verse 2 that faith pleases God. So verse 2 says, For by it the people of old receive their commendation. Now, Hebrews 11 is one of the many passages which affirm that salvation has always been by grace through faith. So how do we please God? That's the question that we ought to think as we're studying this passage. How do we please God? Well, not by works. We've never pleased God by works. Not in this age, not in previous ages. We've never pleased God by works. We have always pleased God by faith. Um, now, you know, because of the influence of the skull Bible, this point has been... Uh, Obscured. So I, I know that uh, there, there are many teachers who say that how do you please God under the Old Covenant? Will you fulfill the law? Uh, and then under the New Covenant, uh, you please God by faith. Well, that's not a contrast that this passage makes. In fact, as you read this passage, this passage is going to labor to, to explain to you in many different ways that people have always pleased God by faith, not by their works. People have never earned salvation by their works. They've always earned salvation by faith. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him righteousness as righteousness. So uh, this is one of the many passages that will uh, be used to demonstrate that basic point. And so as we're going through the passage, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, how faith pleases God. We have many different examples here in the passage of how faith pleases God. How do you please God? You please him through faith. And we're going to give we are going to get many different examples here that I've listed. So, uh, uh, The author of Hebrews gives us this example of creation, example of Abel, pleasing God through faith. uh, The example of Enoch, uh, pleasing God through faith, of Noah, uh, of the events surrounding the Abrahamic covenant and how they please God through faith. Uh, Similarly, uh, once we get to uh, the Exodus, we talk about how the events of the Exodus, the people involved, please God through faith. Uh, The conquest of Jericho pleased God through faith. And then Rahab the prostitute pleased God through faith. And finally, just too many uh, examples to comment on (laughs) and how they all pleased God through faith. So that's where we're going today. So how do we – we're going to be talking about pleasing God by faith throughout redemption history. So now as uh, Hebrews 11 begins, they start – the author of Hebrews starts in a very natural way with the beginning of the Bible, right? Right? So the the text says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So how do we please God? That's going to be the question that governs our time here today. Well, first, you trust that there is a God who made the world out of nothing. So in order to uh, please God, you have to first sort of believe that he exist, right? And that he made you and that he created the world. And that's why the Bible begins the way it begins. is because the, the Bible, uh, God, God has given revelation to us in order that we may understand him and have a relationship with him. And so foundational to that is we have to understand that he made us, right? I mean, there's no more fun, foundational or fundamental truth to the Christian life than that we believe in, that there is a God who made us. Now, there's a lot of pressure to distrust God's words from its opening pages. Um, just thinking about some of these conversations that I've already made mention to you, have your, you believe in faith, I believe in science, and science has proven not that we're created by a personal God, but that God, um, if there is one, probably there isn't one, that's just a fantasy, uh, but that we're really just the product of time and chance and um, accidents, right? So uh, the predominant view out there is not that there is a God who made us, but that we're the product of uh, blind uh, evolutionary Process right so, uh, but but foundational to a biblical worldview is by faith we understand the world was created. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just uh, eternal. No, it, it, we don't believe in a, a eternal world that always existed. No, we believe uh, that the universe as we see it was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So we believe in the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo. Now that's a, a Latin word, which means out of nothing. We believe in creation from nothing. God uh, simply spoke in the universe as we see it came into being. That's foundational uh, to a Christian worldview. And we trust that by faith. You understand? I trust that the universe was created uh, by faith. That doesn't mean that there's no evidence to support creation by, uh, to uh, support the idea of creation out of nothing. It's just simply to say, I'm not that old, right? I mean, that wasn't there. Uh, but similarly, when you talk uh, talk to evolutionists, they weren't there either, right? They weren't there either. No one was there. So we all have faith in something. The question is not, uh, you know, I have faith and the atheist doesn't have faith. That's not the question. The question is, what do we have faith in, right? So uh, is the faith that we have misplaced or is it well-founded? Now, when we have faith in God, God's trustworthy. And, and, and so what God says is true, his word doesn 't change. if you notice that many of the scientific theories that you 'll see there's a new one every every week why well it's not as sure as it's not, the point is it 's not as sure as what you find in god 's word um, give you know give it a little bit of time i 'm sure we'll have a new idea of creation uh, that is different than evolution so um that being the case, the foundation for all Christian ethics, though, uh, is the belief in a creator God. If I did not make me, then I do not belong to me. Right. Uh, the reason why uh, the author of Hebrews starts this way, the Bible starts this way with creation is because uh, if you're going to be talking about faith in God, you have to believe there is a God and you have to define a relationship you have with God. So. Uh, How do you please God? That's our question. Will you trust that there is a God who created the world from nothing? Second, what we see is this example of Abel. Uh, So, by faith, Abraham offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he died. Uh, though he died, he still speaks. So, how do you please God? Well, uh, secondly, you trust that this God, the one who created the world from nothing provides a means of being reconciled to him and that's what we see in the example of abel so not only is there a god who made the world who i'm accountable to if god made the world i'm accountable to him Uh, there's also a god who's provided a means of me being reconciled to him you understand so um now that only makes sense if you understand how genesis 3 works so god created the world he created it good and once you get to genesis 3 you understand that there's a problem Um, As a result of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in rejection to God's clear commands, uh, then life becomes more difficult. Uh, The curse involved, uh, you know, Adam and Eve used to walk with God, uh, walk and talk with God in the cool of the day. But after the fall, they're cast out of the Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. Because of uh, sin's presence in the Lord, man is separated from his maker. And so he has a real problem. Now... um, God has always been a gracious God and he provides a means of being reconciled to him. So as we are studying the book of Hebrews, we're studying... Some of those temporary means that he has instituted in order that we might be uh, reconciled to him. So we're studying the sacrificial system. Even prior to the sacrificial system, which was instituted in the Levitical law, what you see is you see Abraham and Cain offering sacrifices to God. Now, uh, there was a means even prior to the law of being reconciled to God, of fixing the problem of sin in a temporary sense, uh, which ultimately pointed to a greater sacrifice, which we've learned. Uh, But in... uh, you know, in this example, in Hebrews 4, there's a debate. Now, what is the, uh, why Why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable is the question. Was it the type of sacrifice? You know, if you read through Genesis, you'll see that Abel uh, offered uh from the first firstborn of his flocks, and Cain offered the sacrifice of the fruit of the ground, so uh, Abel was a lives, uh, was a herdsman, and Cain was a farmer, and so they each offered what they had and so what was what was the deal? Was it acceptable to uh, God because of the different type of sacrifice maybe i, I don 't really think that 's the case I, but I mean that could be, but genesis doesn 't say it, so i i don 't know that I would go there. Uh, in general if you if you read through the Old Testament law, what you see is there are grain offerings and wave offerings there, there's many different types of offerings in the law. I don't know that the issue was just blood, but it could be, and I could be wrong, and I you know I, I really don't think that's the main point. The main point as you look through here, what is i I think the the reason that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable is because of the motive behind it. That's what the author of Hebrew says by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. So um, even under the Old Covenant, uh, even before the Old Covenant, God provides a means of being reconciled to him, which is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So how do we please God? We, first of all, we trust there is a God who created the world out of nothing. Second, we trust that this God who created the world provides a means of being reconciled to him. That means today in this point in redemption history is uh, trusting in the finished work of Christ uh, on the cross on our behalf. Now, the third thing we see is this example of Enoch. So how do we please God? Well, uh, we trust uh, that God rewards those who seek him. And that's what we see in the example of Enoch. Look at uh, verse 5 here. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe First of all, that he exists. that We saw that in the first point, right? We must believe that there's a God who exists who created the world out of nothing. So we must believe that he exists and furthermore that he rewards those who seek him. Now, in the uh, example of Enoch, we don't really have a whole lot of information in the Old Testament about uh, Enoch itself. I mean, all you see is uh, an Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. Now, that's a significant statement in the context of Genesis because you have the big long list of people who died, right? Uh, so, uh, if you just go to Genesis here and look at the genealogy that you find in Genesis um, 5, I don't know. we'll see. 4. Okay, I know 5. I was right. So... Um, basically you see this continual refrain about death so uh, because of the, the advent of sin into the world man is cursed to death so when you read verse 3 it said adam had lived 130 years and he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him seth and so then you skip to verse 5 that's all the days that adam lived were 930 years and he died so you have this continual refrain uh there's a um, Adam, he has a son, then he dies. Uh, verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he followed Enosh. So uh, there's Seth, he lived a certain amount of years, he followed a son. And then, um, then verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Uh, Enish had lived 90 years, he followed his own son. Verse 11, uh, that's all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. So what you're seeing is the historical working out of the curse on man. So why is why is the refrain, the continual refrain there of death? Well, because if you sin, you die, right? Uh, but then once we get to uh, the six from Adam, uh, Enoch, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered, uh, methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters Thus, all the days of enoch were six hundred three hundred and sixty-five 365 years enoch walked with god and he was not for god took him so he was not what dead <laughs> right uh, so uh, you don't really have a whole lot there with enoch uh, but what we do understand is that god from that you understand that god diligent uh, rewards those who diligently seek him and why do you understand that well, because as a result of sin entering into the world, what happened? Death and separation from God. So immediately after Adam and Eve sin, they're cast out of Eden, away from God's presence. Uh, they used to walk and talk with God in the cool of the day, but now their access to God has been blocked. There's an uh, angel with a flaming sword that's set up outside of Eden. They're, uh, they're not even permitted to enter back into Eden where God is said to dwell anymore because of this angel with this flaming sword. But what do you see with... Uh, Enoch, you see him walking with God. So somehow you see Enoch says that I'm living in a cursed world. There's a problem. Uh, You know, I can't make sense of the world on my own. I need uh, revelation from God. I need to seek God. And because of that, you know, he understood that I'm created by God. God has the answers for how I should live. Uh, And so uh, from all that, we infer that uh, Enoch saw his problem and saw the solution was trying to uh, pursue God. And God rewards those who diligently seek him. So how does God reward us? That would be a question we could ask as we're thinking through this passage. Well, as you go through the passage, there's a continual refrain about trusting in the things that God has promised. So ultimately, all, all the people that are listed in uh, this chapter are looking forward to th- things that God has promised that they will receive, but don't fully realize those promises. And as we go through the passage, we're going to talk about how those promises find those Uh, find their fulfillment but ultimately we're looking for something that this world can't satisfy today so as you think about our life ultimately we know that god has promised to bless us and that uh, in this world we'll have tribulation Uh, in this world we won't experience all the blessings that god has provided for us just read through the sermon on the mount uh, the beatitudes and the ritual uh, the uh, we could just talk about just go to matthew 5 and you can see that there are future promises that we look forward to by faith. So um, uh, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're, we're looking forward to a different kingdom than the kingdom that we see, he, the kingdoms here today. If we put our faith and trust in government, for instance, we're always going to be let down because government has fallen and corrupted. We're looking forward to a different sort of kingdom, uh, not, an, uh, not a earthly kingdom in this age similarly blessed are those who mourn for they uh shall be comforted so uh, we're looking forward to god has promised that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes Uh, one day the sadness and the struggles that we experience today uh, will be no more one day everything will be set right and we know that just it doesn't take very much work to look at our lives here today and see that things aren't set right today i mean in this world, we have pain we have suffering we have death Death is an enemy that one day will be destroyed. Uh, but right now, here today, in this life, we experience problems and struggles and difficulties and uh, persecutions. And uh, in, uh, One day, we look forward to, with the strong confidence and hope, that God will set those things right. Similarly, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, uh, we're looking forward to not simply a new heaven, but also a new earth. So, uh, just look to the end of Revelation. Revelation. Um, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and we we will reign with him on the earth. Uh, Similarly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We experience some measure of satisfaction here today in this life, but we're looking forward to one day experiencing full and complete unrestrained uh, satisfaction. So um, you can just keep on doing that sort of thing, but there's definitely, uh, we're all looking forward to uh, promises that will come to fulfillment not only in this life but also in the life to come, so um, our main past, our main question we 're asking is how do we please God as i 've said well first of all, you trust that he created the world out of nothing uh, secondly. Uh, you trust that this God has provided a means of being reconciled to him. So the fall isn't the last word. There is good news, a gospel of what Jesus has done in history. Uh, third, you trust that God rewards those who seek him. So when we, we, we trust that there is a God who made us and that if we seek him, our, our, we won't uh, be laboring in vain, right? Uh, so ultimately, we have a hope that he has good plan for us, um, both in this life and in the next. Uh, now, the um, fourth thing we see here is in the example of Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. So what we see here in the example of Noah is that how do you please God? Will you trust that God both warns of impending judgment and also provides a means of escape from the wrath to come? So in many ways, as you're thinking about the story of the flood, sometimes I think we can have a sentimental view of the flood. You know, you just like go into nurseries and you see pictures of Noah's Ark and then there's probably going to be a giraffe's head sticking outside the window, right? Uh, Well, um, that presents... The flood as a happy sort of thing, you know, just sort of a children's story that we tell. But I mean, really, as you think about the flood, what is it? I mean, it's a terrifying picture of God's wrath on the world. I mean, when you think about the flood, it's um, I mean, it's really an awful story of God uh, seeing the wickedness on. On the earth and seeing that every intent, thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continually. So God's looking down at his creation. His creation is rejecting him, rebelling against him. Every t- thought and intention of their heart uh, hyperbolically is said to be evil continually. And he looks down upon this people that he's made who spit, spit in his face, rejecting His, um, denying his existence, rejecting him. And, and he uh, determines to destroy creation and start over with man noah so really when you think about the flood you ought to think about a terrifying picture of volcanic eruptions and mass drownings i mean that's what we're talking about we're not talking about a happy giraffe with his head uh, hanging out of a boat i mean uh, but how do you how do you please god will you trust that what god says about the world is true right and god is going to come to this world in judgment uh, and when he comes the second time, it's going to be worse than the first, right? I mean, the first—if the first time he came in judgment sounded bad, think about the pictures of judgment that you see in the Gospels, in the Book of Revelation. It's—you know—sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, the Old Testament God was angry and uh, wrathful," and uh, but then I love Jesus. I love the New Testament God. He's happy and loving, and kind of like a—I guess—California hippie. I guess you would say. Um, You know, he's gentle Jesus, uh, make him mild and all that. And then uh, he's the nice guy, and then God is the angry guy. And so then it's sort of like God's mad at you, and then Jesus is happy and, you know, nice. And he always has a smile on his face. Uh, And then, um, so I like him, but I don't like God. But then Jesus, you know, has fixed God's problem with me. But then it's not really like that. When Jesus comes in his resurrection, he's going to come in vengeance and fury Uh, with his angels in flaming fire, right? And and so the pictures of judgment you see in the book of Revelation are much worse than anything we've ever seen before, right? Uh, So whereas he judged the world with water before, he's going to come in in wrath and fury, um, stamping out uh, his enemies under his boots uh, in the winepress of his anger, so to speak. So, uh, you know, the pictures that you see here here are of God um, stamping his enemies under his feet, Uh, As you would stamp grapes under your feet. In a wine press. Uh, So. um, Really I mean. That picture of Jesus isn't accurate. In order to. uh, Please God. We must trust that. These pictures of judgment. That are yet to come are real. Right. And if our friends and our neighbors. Don't come to know the Lord. They're going to be. They are objects of God's wrath. And they will experience God's wrath. Forever in hell. So. Uh, We we don't like to talk about hell, but we have to if we're if we're to be faithful to what the Bible says, you know, Jesus is the Lord of hell. He created hell for the devil and his angels and he uh, he is Lord both in heaven and on earth and uh, under the earth. So uh, how do we please God? Well, we trust that God not only warns of this impending judgment, but he also provides a means of escape. So in the in the story of Noah, what you see is that God warns Noah uh, that there will be a coming flood and he uh, tells him to construct an ark and so that ark is to be a picture of god uh, saving a few people from the uh, coming wrath and so just think about the proportions there they're not very good right i mean you have seven people on an ark uh well similarly when you come to the new testament it's a similar sort of thing i mean why does the gate that leads to destruction narrow is the way that leads to life and because it's narrow few will find it right that's a statement of proportion um the broad gate's easy, uh, the narrow gate is hard. And so we trust, uh, we please God by trusting that he created the world and that uh, he stands in judgment over the world, but yet he provides a means of escape. Now, what is this means of escape? That's the question. What is the means of escape? Well, uh, you see this means of escape being provide, uh, explained as you go through the passage. So uh, you, you look at the example of the Abrahamic covenant given here. Um, Now, um, we'll we'll read uh, verse 8 here. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So that's all making reference to Genesis 12.3. Turn there if you can. Uh, If not, then don't worry. I'll quote it uh genesis 12 3 is the abrahamic covenant that's made mentioned here Uh, now if you really want to just to pause for a second if you really want to understand the bible i know the old testament's a big long book um, with a lot of stuff in there but uh if you really want to understand the old testament the author of hebrews just gives you an easy way to do it right i mean he gives you he's he's hitting a lot of the highlights and where does he spend the most time he's going to spend the most time on the abrahamic covenant and then the exodus right well if you actually look through the Old Testament, those are some of the most important things that are happening in the Old Testament. He's given you a way of prioritizing what you see in the Bible itself. So uh, if, if, the way to uh, understand the whole is to think through some of the w- things that are emphasized in the New. Now look at the Abrahamic covenant in t- uh, Genesis 12 um, we'll start with all one. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham before he changed his name, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the last word is not the fall, right? I mean, when you when you look at the Fall in Genesis 3, you see cursing. That's not the last word. God has a plan to bless the world. What is his plan to bless the, wor- uh, the world? Well, he's going to do it through this man, Abram. He's going to change his name to Abraham. And from Abraham is going to come a seed, now, uh, who will ultimately be Christ. Now, the problem there is that Abr- Abram, Abraham, he's really old, and Sarah, his wife, is really old and past the age of childbearing. And so God says to Abraham, I, I want you to go from where you are, you're pagan idolatry right now. Uh, and um, in the land of Ur, you I mean, you worship idols. Uh, now, I, I want you to go from this land, I'm going to bring you to a new land, uh, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and the people who bless you, I'm going to bless, and the people who curse you, I'm going to curse. So, uh, at that point in history, how do you obtain favor with God? Well, you bless those whom God blessed, right? So, God has a plan to bless the world through this man, Abraham. Now, uh, he says, uh, in you, Uh, All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so um, nations and kings are going to come from Abraham. He's going to have offspring. But the problem is that they're old. I mean, right? So, I mean, they're they're old. They're past the age of childbearing. Uh, But uh, originally, uh, when when you're thinking through this plan to bless uh, bless, bless the world... Uh, you're you're talking about all these individual elements of this Abrahamic covenant. So we'll pick up on some of those elements in our passage in Hebrews. So, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place he, that he was to receive his inheritance. So he went out not worrying, knowing where he was going. So in this way, uh, he trusted that God was more important than anything that... He had seen in his life that God was uh, more impressive and that God, if God says he's going to give him a land, he's going to go. And I I haven't seen that land yet. So notice your definition of faith. I'm going to go to a land I haven't seen because you're telling me to do that. I'm going to do that because I trust you, because uh, you're worthy of all praise. So uh, what we see then in terms of our main question, how do we please God? Well, we trust that God is faithful to fulfill his promise in his own time. So God tells Abraham to go. Uh, We Abraham trusted that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He's given him all these promises, and so God will fulfill his promises in his own time. So uh, God told Abraham to go. Abraham went. Now, Abraham lived in the land of promise by faith. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. So, I mean, at that point in time, it wasn't even didn't even belong to him, but he lived in it as he was living in a foreign land, living in tents uh, with Isaac and Jacob. So they lived in tents. They didn't build structures there because the land didn't belong to him, but he did what God told him to do. Um, so they were uh, heirs with uh, Isaac and Jacob were heirs with him as the same promise and so he did this by faith trusting God would uh, fulfill his promise uh, in his own time but they were ultimately looking forward to a better city a better place to dwell so um, as as you're thinking about this um, passage what you see is to live by faith is to live by trust so we trust that God is faithful to fulfill his own promises in uh, his own time now um the second main thing that we'll see here, and I'm not going to speak about everything just for the sake of time here. Um, I think w- w- what I'll do is I'll, when you're talking about trusting in God's promises, you know, maybe we could even end on this point here. I'll just end on Abraham, and I want to say a little bit about God, uh, trusting in God's promises and the importance of doing that, and then we can close our time here today. Uh, without even getting to the exodus or the rest of it. Uh, but then I have a scriptural warrant for doing that because uh, uh, the author of Hebrews knew that I would be uh, preaching the whole chapter in one hour. And he said, time will not permit us to tell about all the uh, the rest of this chapter. So he, kn- he knew. Uh, uh, but uh, as we're saying, uh, faith involves trusting God's promises. And, and so... Um, and now the error of the prosperity church is that the prosperity church often encourages people to believe God for things, right? So I'm just believing God for a new job, and I'm just believing God for a new car, and I'm just believing God for you know a healthy doctor's appointment, or I'm just believing God for this and that. And I've done a little bit of counseling, and so I, uh, a lot of the counseling I've done has been people who come from a prosperity church. And so they would come in, and they're all telling me about all these things that they're believing God for. And as I'm listening to all that, um, often what you're trying to warn them is the error of presumptu- presumption. So if God didn't promise you this, you know, it, it doesn't do any good to say you're believing him for something that he didn't promise. Uh, that's the sort of faith that is not well-founded. We can, uh, when we're thinking about the sort of faith that Scripture encourages us to have, uh, we're... Uh, encouraged to trust God to do what he says he'll do. And so if you want to have a a sure and a steadfast hope, uh, if you want to have a faith that's unmoved in the midst of trials, one of the ways to have a faith that's unmoved in the midst of trials and difficulties is to think very carefully about what God says he's going to do. So um, God hasn't promised us an easy life, for instance. Uh, God's promised to provide for us. He provides for the birds of the air. Uh, He clothes the grass of the field. He provides to give us food and clothing so we can trust him for that, for what he's promised us to do. But he hasn't promised the easy life that will be easy and uh, free of difficulty. And so sometimes people, when they're thinking about, you know, my faith is shaken when difficult things happen, what they're communicating to you is that they believe that god was going to do something that he didn't say he was going to do and so when he didn't do what he didn't say he was going to do then all of a sudden uh, their faith is shaken they don't really know what to do and, and so what we what we need to do in those uh in situations like those is encourage people and encourage ourselves to think through very carefully what has god promised how can i trust him for what he's promised because whatever he's promised he's going to do and so uh with that uh let's close with a word of prayer and we'll um uh, turn our time over here to um well, actually what we'll do this time is i, I will we'll spend a couple minutes thinking of, we'll spend a few minutes praying uh in our seats this will be a time of response you'll and, and let's just think about um may, maybe just think through some areas where uh, you feel like your faith is shaken and that uh god didn't deliver what he'd promised and uh, pray, pray that during that time you asked uh you think through the scriptures and, and think through, are there areas that I, I feel worried and upset? Uh, what has God promised me in those areas? And then furthermore, uh, are, there, uh, are there things that I'm believing God for that he hasn't said he's going to do? And, and then uh, rest in confident trust that God is faithful to his word. So uh, take two minutes and pray, and then uh, I'll close this in prayer.